When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. Coinbase set to delist Binance USD. Yuga Labs is launching an NFT project on Bitcoin, and the DEX summer is not quite materializing. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Mike Belshi from BitGo and Nico Cordero from Strix Leviathan. Welcome to the show, gentlemen. Thanks for having me. Good to see you again, Ash. Always a pleasure. Plenty to discuss with our guests today, including the recently proposed new SEC rules for digital asset custody. But first, let's take a look at the latest price analysis. The overall crypto market is slightly lower today on coin market cap. According to a research note by Bank of America cited by Coindesk, tokens that provide utility will perform better in 2023 than meme and governance tokens. In the meantime, Bitcoin is stable at around 25,500. That's pretty much where we were at this time yesterday. In the meantime, Bitcoin, uh, excuse me, Ether hasn't moved much either. It's currently trading at $1,640. That's 2% lower on a trailing seven-day basis. Decrypt reports ETH gas fees are going up again as the NFT market rebounds. According to data from Glassnode, the median price for gas, which is fees people pay to complete their Ethereum transactions has gone up between 10 and 20 guai and as high as 38 guai. Glassnode says that's higher than during the FTX collapse. And finally, the best performer today is Singularity Net, symbol AGIX. It's up 16% over the last 24 hours. Bitcoinists attribute this to a rumor that Elon Musk might be building a chat GPT competitor. Singularity Net is a Cardano-based AI platform that allows developers to share and monetize AI services on a marketplace. Uh, now, before I speak to Mike and Nico, a word about our sponsor. The episode, This episode of Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App delivers everything you need to stay on top of the world of crypto and your own crypto holdings. It includes a market-leading price tracker, portfolio manager, analytics suite, and newsfeed, as well as a wide variety of customizable alerts and widgets. Crypto moves fast, so don't be left behind. With over 4 million downloads, the crypto app is the market-leading app for all things crypto. With that said, let's bring in our guests. Mike Belshi is the CEO of BitGo, a crypto custody company, and Nico Cordero is the chief investment officer at Strix Leviathan. Mike, lots has happened uh, since you were last on RV in November. Let's start with you. Big picture, what are your takeaways on what's happening in the space right now well um thanks ash look uh as we all know we are in the middle of a a global uh, economic situation uh so it's not crypto we hear a lot about the crypto winter but really crypto just happens to be a high volatile asset 
uh, inside of a much bigger picture at the macro level. So, you know, we're continuing to see that. This is going to see consolidation in the space. This is going to see some of the smaller companies, you know, really uh, falling out of the system. Um, and we're going to see who the big, big, big winners are. Those who are building through this period are going to come out really strong, uh, kind of about probably 12 months from now. Uh, Nico, how about you? What's your take on what you see happening in the markets uh, more broadly? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd agree with Mike's points. You know, there is a pretty heavy macro overhang and a lot of uncertainty in the traditional economy, which has spilled over to cryptocurrencies. You know, crypto is still on the long end of the risk curve. And as um, more traditional assets, volatility picks up, rates rise, you know, there's a natural pull from allocators from the deep end to the shorter end, uh, particularly when you can get five, six percent a year uh, in U.S. Treasuries and other government-backed assets. Um, so, I mean, I, I think that that's a lot of uncertainty. And then the regulatory environment has the uncertainty around there has increased exponentially, which I really want to talk about on the show. Um, so, I mean, and big picture, you know, we continue to be incredibly bullish on the three to five year time frame. But in the short term, it's, uh, you know, we view it as anybody's guest, given all these various factors that uh, are, are dictating where we move. Yeah, we're going to talk more about macro headwinds in just a second, but I wanted to touch on another story that's all about regulation, uh, as you guys both framed it. U.S. crypto exchange Coinbase has announced it will delist BUSD on March 13th. BUSD, of course, is a Binance-branded stablecoin issued by Paxos. Paxos said earlier this month that it will stop issuing new BUSD as it expects to be hit with a lawsuit by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. I also believe that uh, they delisted that or began, they uh, ceased minting that after guidance from NYDFS, the New York Department of Financial Services. BUSD has managed to hold on to its dollar peg despite the news, although the market cap has been dwindling uh, and it's now less than half of what it was at peak. Still, it remains the third largest stable coin and one of the largest digital assets overall. Uh, again, this goes back to the question of regulation. Um, you know, Mike, maybe we can go to you uh, to talk a little bit about what you see happening on the regulatory uh, landscape. Uh, obviously, some significant changes in terms of qualified custodians. Uh, talk a little bit about that and its impact on your business and the space more broadly. Sure. Well, look, the regulators in the wake of FTX are clearly deciding it's time to take action. Uh, this leading to a lot of concern about this. Is it the right type of action? Are they leading by telling us, you know, here's the type of per permitted activities, or are they leading by coming after enforcement actions and leaving it kind of gray as to what's permitted and what's not permitted? So you know, we saw Kraken had a settlement with the SEC earlier this year, or not, and just earlier this month, and uh, uh, exactly which part of their activity was uh, scrutinized by the SEC and which one was allowed is a little unclear from our view as an institutional platform provider. You know, staking as a service has not been indicted as like all staking as a service is a problem, but it's unclear when the SEC regulates through enforcement as opposed to by saying these are the policies that are accepted. So that's one angle. Now, as you know, Bitco's a qualified well, custodian. Well, you, you did have, you did have um, Gary Gensler uh, with the video, uh, you know, grilling stakes, talking about staking as a service, specifically as a, as a category or as a class. Uh, it doesn't sound as though the regulatory environment is terribly friendly towards staking as a service right now. Well, definitely not friendly, but remember just words from Gary Gensler, it's not the same as, as policy. We also had a couple of years ago, you know, chief lieutenants at the SEC talking about Ethereum, which is now a key part of like the Ripple case. And did the SEC endorse it by having those comments or not? Um, does their lack of right. action or delayed action impact Ripple's culpability? Should it be a security or not? So look, again, what, what matters is getting, you know, full policy out writing it down, 
talking with industry, working with leaders, and, and saying this is the type of activity we're going to permit or not permit. Um, now, on the other side of the SEC activities, we see uh, a newfound discussion around custody. Um, and of course, with the equities world in the, in the stock market, you know, qualified custody has been a known thing for a very long time. People haven't really had to revisit it. And all of a sudden, the SEC is saying, okay, we're going to expect that crypto also should be held with qualified custodians if you are registered under the Advisors Act, Investment Act. Um, so this is actually kind of a good change. I think it is in the wake of FTX. Um, now, where it's not a good change is if it actually ends up preventing, you know, unhosted wallets or self-custody. Um, and one of the big advantages we have in front of us with digital assets is that it brings everybody onto an equal playing field where whether you're a bank or the smallest individual or what have you, you have the ability to interf interface with the blockchains directly um, without any disproportionate advantages to those that have regulatory modes. Great, huge innovator uh, for the future if we can maintain it. Now, when it comes to holding someone else's assets, right? We've always held a higher bar. If it's my assets, I can do whatever I want with it. I can put it in my basement. I can give it to somebody else and give it to my brother. Whatever makes me comfortable with how I'm going to secure my assets. But if I'm holding assets on behalf of somebody else, I have a duty of care. I'm a fiduciary. In this case, the SEC is saying you're in you're in part of the Investment Advisors Act. You need to be using a qualified custodian. I think this is going to be healthy for the ecosystem long term, um, and look forward to seeing more. Nico, jump in. Uh, what do you think in terms of the uh, sort of regulatory headwinds that the space sees more generally? Yeah, I mean, I mean, picking back piggybacking off the qualified custodian discussion, I don't disagree that long term that's healthy, but you know the way that this has gone about, it just increases confusion around how we can uh, meet those requirements. You know, so, you know, at client assets have to be held with a qualified custodian. Well, what does that mean? You know, that's a bank, a broker dealer, a futures commission merchant, or certain foreign financial institution. Today, very few of those exist. You know, Bitco mentioned they're a qualified custodian, Anchorage, Coinbase, Custody, or others. These are not places where assets actually trade. So what about the Coinbase exchange? What about Kraken exchange? And then we get into the questions around offshore, like Binance or Huobi, um, and there's not a ton of clarity there. Um, so it makes things difficult. You know, why was so much U.S. capital on FTX? Well, it's because U.S. exchanges, there, there's no regulatory clarity. And um, I think even with this new push, there doesn't seem to be um, a clear uh, vision of how we're supposed to uh, comply with the proposed rules. Yeah. I, I wanted to touch on another story since we're talking about centralized exchanges here uh, and Coinbase specifically in the last story. Here's an interesting set of data from Kaiko as flagged by Coindesk. Trading volume at centralized exchange Coinbase is now more than double that of centralized exchange Uniswap. Uh, that's despite the two being in lockstep at one point earlier in 2022. Uh, when FTX collapsed in November, there was an expectation, I think, among some analysts that this is uh, the moment that decentralized exchanges have been waiting for uh, and that they would seize that moment. But that doesn't seem to be happening. Uh, guys, what are your thoughts on this? Why do we see this continued uh, degree of centralization or uh, at least a lack of massive expansion in the deck space that many had predicted? Well, I think there's a conflating set of factors, and it's really, really hard to, to disentangle all of the things that go into markets and how they move one way or another. So sure, the FTX example demonstrates how strong DeFi can be and ought to be like a catalyst to grow that industry. On the other hand, it also has the other side, which is a lot of distrust has come into the system. Like, is there another SBF waiting in the wings? Have we finished 
with right. the the bad lending programs that happened with Genesis um, and uh, Three Arrows and and whatnot. So overall, there's a lot of fear in the markets. And I think it's really hard to say that like the progress of any particular product line is somehow hinged on not having had a catalyst from FTX, given just all the cloudiness that's out there. Nico, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you know the, the time frame that we're looking at is too short to make any you know, long-term opinions about whether decentralized exchanges will surpass centralized exchanges or not. Um, you know, DEXs have their own laundry list of problems. They're not UI, UX friendly. Um, there's a lot of technical um, overhead um, to get comfortable with those type of manner. Um, and then, yeah. you know, generally speaking, there's not a ton of new capital flowing into the space. Um, and Coinbase has captured a large market share on the on the institutional side. Um, but I think, you know, long-term, you will see that narrative continue to persist. And one of the things we've seen internally is a big push towards decentralized perpetuals. Um, and, and so that's something we've seen in the short term. But uh, long-term, I think this is a trend that'll continue. And, you know, it, it's, it's why we're here, right? It's why, it's why we all operate in this space to disintermediate um, and to create decentralized uh, solutions for people to be able to trade, be able to, um, you know, have economic activity without, by, you know, going through these centralized intermediaries. So, so Nico, it sounds like you're, it sounds time. like you're you're broadly bullish on DEXs uh, in the longer term future. Uh, what do you see that uh, path looking like in terms of migration? What sort of time horizon? Uh, might we be looking at, you mentioned this idea that we were looking at on too short a time span. Uh, how long do you think it takes us to get to a DEX world? That's a great question. I mean, the honest answer is I don't know, but I'd, I'd probably say at least the minimum of 10 years, right? Like, you know, the tech that exists today might not even be the tech that we utilize, um, you know, 10 years from now. Um, there's a lot of development going on in the back end. Today, a lot of decentralized financial applications, actually most of them, or if not all of them, operate on a smart contract where they, essentially outsource their security to uh, layer ones that don't uh, you know, necessarily you know, care about the success or failure of that overlying uh, smart contract. So I think there's development going around behind the scenes to kind of uh, try new things, try new technical approaches that we'll see emerge over the next couple of years and uh, you know, 10 plus years, you know, this may be the way everything trades. Hey Mike, how do you think about the future of decentralization in this space more broadly? So super bullish. Um, Look, I think we're at a, a point in time where on one hand we're incubating what's going to be the best type of market that's ever been known that can make regulatory so much easier, so much more transparent, so much more fair and actually work. And on the other hand, we've got an existing regulatory regime which might accidentally or purposefully crush it before it even gets started. And what I'm talking about is this, is that you, know, you start looking at some of the simple applications and here I'm talking about basic lending platforms, you know, and some of the automated market makers. Uh, these are legitimate systems. They, they, they went through this whole crisis over the last 12 months with, with flying colors, no problems. Now, there's still some smart contract bugs being worked out. Institutionally, we can't quite use it. It doesn't fit with sanctions controls yet. But there's a few th things to be sorted out. Those are solvable problems. If you get through this, you've now got broker dealers that are machines that operate under consistent rules and never cheat. And when you think about what is the SEC and FINRA, it's largely about, you know, making sure that humans who are operating systems, whether that be automated or manual, uh, don't cheat. And, and you can have a person who, you know, 10 years ago, he was honest and straightforward stockbroker, didn't cheat, didn't insider trade, didn't take his client's money and use it in different ways. Um, and yet he can run into a different financial situation in the future and suddenly 
you know, he, he could be a cheater. So for this reason, he has to be monitored every single day. And as you know, stockbrokers heavily monitored industry, every single text message, every email, all has to be watched. Well, with machines, you don't have to do that. You review the code once, you know, you make sure that it's maintained and, and updated properly and you have a much better system. So anyway, I'm incredibly bullish on what the technology is going to be able to do. If you want to have safe markets, you absolutely want to have those be run by the machines as opposed to run by the people. Yeah, you know, it's interesting as we talk about this uh, trajectory moving forward to true decentralization, uh, to Nico's point, this idea that it may be a somewhat longer journey than many people anticipated. Uh, you know, Mike, in many ways, nobody's better uh, positioned to talk about this than you are. I, I remember back in the year 2000 when I was one of the young kids on Wall Street uh, and the old guys who were probably younger than I am today said to me, you know, that Internet thing was really cute, kid, but what are you planning on doing with the rest of your life? Uh, you know, you were there uh, creating the HTTP 2.0 specification, working at Google uh, on the Chrome browser later. Uh, you've seen this transition uh, in uh, between uh, sort of web 1.0, web 2.0, and now uh, toward web 3.0 and decentralization. Uh, what has sort of the lessons of history taught you about the way these processes unfold? Well, it's basic product design. You know, when you build products that delight the people that are using them, um, you tend to grow. And you know, the internet enabled technology to reach the masses in ways that had not been doable prior to the year 2000, as you mentioned. And we've continued to apply technology to make that problem better and better. So we're building better products all the time, users adopt them, and that causes the changes we see. Now, when it comes to money, however, we've got this other angle, which is money and power very tightly coupled, and that power very tightly coupled to you know, the government itself. So all of a sudden, you've got a complication of technology where it's not just about which applications work better in which ways, but it's actually all the way up to like who's in control of everything. Um, and so, you know, there's a lot of talk, you know, politically about uh, the wealthy class versus the poorer class. You know, what's the best system for, for moving forward for all people over the long term? There's a lot of people vying for control and power. So I think we're going to see a different unfolding of this technology than we will with non-financial technology because it matters, frankly, at just a different level. But at the end of the day, you know, money and financial products, it's not the, it's not the end, it's not the ends that we're looking for. It's like building better things in our lives, building products, building houses, building things that make people's lives better. That's what we should be doing. The financial systems, money, just tools for keeping track of it all. So let me ask you this. Uh, you mentioned a word that came up a number of times there, which is this idea of product. Uh, I remember in the early 2000s for about 20 minutes there, uh, I was a product manager over at E-Trade. I owned their advanced uh, trading platform product uh, for at least 15 minutes. Uh, and it's interesting because, you know, you talk about this idea of this of productization uh, and the way that product folks think about this. I'm not sure we're really at a point now uh, where people are thinking about this from a product standpoint, uh, the way you would in a, in a private company. I don't know, maybe user interface, user experience seems to be something uh, that has not really been at the very top uh, of the uh, of the community's sort of focus. It seems to be a little bit more abstract, a little bit more on solving the big backend problems. Is that just a function uh, of of the, the sequencing? Is that just a distinction between the way uh, private companies work versus open source software? If you think about uh, the Linux kernel or something like that, uh, obviously not something that's uh, necessarily for mom and pops uh, to, to uh, sort of work with. How do you think about that uh, process by which products get built uh, and user experience and user interface issues get sorted out? 
But when I'm talking about product, I'm talking about technology products that we use in order to interface with our money, however that may be. Um, you know, financial companies for a long time have called you know investment products products. Uh, those don't necessarily have to be technology based. Those could be run by people where they're offering a particular, you know, what they claim to be an algorithm for how they invest or whatnot. And who knows how well they adhere to that. So I'm talking about the, the technology side of products. Um, and I, I would I would challenge you to think about like your banking interfaces, the products that you use there. And you know, I often get into uh, you know speeches and 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 whatnot, and and I, I ask the audience to raise their hand if they love their banks, and you know nobody raises their hands. Um, and a big part of that is a lack of good interface to the bank, a lack of good product. Um, at the end of the day, we live our lives to go have fun. We go live our lives to make our children's lives better, to get smarter, to educate ourselves, to um, have a better standard of living. Money is a thing that we use to grease the skid so that we can um, pass value from one to another over time, but it isn't the end product. So I, I, I think, especially in crypto, there's probably too much speculation as a product, like, hey, see money go up, that's a product. Nah, that's not what I'm talking about when I say product. But it's still easier to use like Zelle, for example, on Chase's website than it is to use Uniswap, right? I would say that the payment products in crypto are not uh, not really great yet. And I think when you have a high volatility crypto, it's pretty unlikely that we're going to see a payment product on top of a Bitcoin or, or, or anything else. Stable coins, I think, are a technology that could finally start to bring payments to digital asset systems. But there, of course, you're going to be uh, inseparably linked to the US dollar or you know, some fiat currency. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Okay, Nico, jump in. You don't, uh, you're not a tech guy. You're, you have a background in quant and in finance. How do you think about this? Well, to your point, I, I think, you know, we're still in the build the infrastructure stage. You know, for those of us that are involved in the, in the industry on a day-to-day -day basis, things are moving a mile a minute and it seems like five years is 50 years, particularly when you have to deal with the volatility in the space and all of the, the other craziness, you know, FTX being the most primary example. Um, but it's still really early. Um, in terms of developing the back end that then allows product engineers to come in and build things that people can utilize easily um, with low friction that improve their lives as Mike was referring to. Um, and so what we see and how I think about this is you have this massive fundamental infrastructure play on the bottom. And then on top of that, you have the world's most expansive casino. Um, and that's the speculation that Mike is talking about where individuals are now utilizing these instruments to speculate on where money lands, where value lands, where consumers rotate to. And I, you know, I think that's a separate game uh, that we're talking about. So, so Nico, what would you like to see as someone who's got a finance background? Uh, what would you like to see this world start to look like uh, before you think it becomes, uh, you know, more friendly to a broader base of users? That's a good, good question. I think one of the, the most interesting projects going on uh, across the community today is um, uh, 
interchain bridges, you know, the, the ability to transfer value natively from one chain to another. Um, it allows for, you know, complete freedom in terms of where you want to store money as opposed to where you want to spend money as opposed to where you want to, you know, play video games, for instance. You know, the asset class is now so expansive, there's different sectors that you need to kind of hone in on. But as, a, as a financial, uh, you know, with a background, I was also in the military when I originally discovered uh, uh, Bitcoin and, and the use case just made total sense. And really that's where you have this global economic system that is frictionless for anybody to use. And you're right, that's the end state. Um, and, and that's what kind of interests me about this, uh, everything that's happening today. So on the infrastructure point, Ash, just to add one more thing, I think we can look at FTX for a little bit of like what's not developed and 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 where do financial products pick up. But you know, FTX, you could break it down as actually being two components, right? One was Alameda Research, which was, I believe, mainly a prop trading firm, although sometimes it's called a hedge fund. And the other part was FTX, the exchange. The, the difference here is that, you know, a, uh, a prop trading firm or a hedge fund is a place where risk is allowed to take off the charts, you know, size. Um, you can take whatever risks with your own money in a in a particular construct. So Alameda blowing up by itself, not really a big deal. Bad for those investors, whoever's money it is, but not bad for the rest of us if everything else is contained. On the infrastructure side, FTX was an exchange. And hmm. when it comes to markets, the way we all work together, we need markets that we can understand and know where the risks are. Now, markets inherently have some amount of risk, but each participant in that market, whether you're a broker dealer, an exchange, a custodian, a clearinghouse, all of these functions, we try to identify and mitigate the risks and actually oversee these parties so that the rest of us can trade reliably without knowing we're not going to get a big rug pull, which is, of course, what happened with Sam Bankman Free. So infrastructure is about how do you build markets that the rest of us can go build stuff on without having everything yanked out from us. Well, you know, two points. The first is this idea of segregation of function uh, in the digital asset space has been compressed uh, in a way that we don't see in the traditional uh, financial assets markets. You know, you have these functions that would be segregated in traditional capital markets, but just are not yet. It's almost like this compression of these different abstraction layers uh, into single entities or, or two or three entities where it would be 12 uh, in, the, in the traditional asset space. Uh, and the second point is, that, you know, in many ways, what we saw in the pre-FTX collapse world was the, the worst of both possible worlds. You had highly centralized actors, uh, and then these highly centralized actors were uh, largely unregulated or operating in these uh, sort of gray areas uh, offshore and not subject to the type of regulation that they would be subject to here in the United States onshore. Perhaps you guys can talk to that uh, point. Uh, Nico, I see you're nodding. Well, yeah, that, I mean, I think that uh, alludes to Mike's point earlier is that, um, you know, these, you know, the SEC, these regulations exist particularly to contain and control um, these intermediaries, right? You can't, you know, to Mike's point about, you know, an individual could be running a broker, uh, a brokerage his entire life, be above board and then have some financial collapse or some interesting uh, event in his life where he decides he's now going to be a criminal and now uh, clients are on the, on the, the tail end of, of what he does. Um, that's where this decentralization, why I think we'll continue to move to these rails is because you remove that risk factor, you remove the need for over-regulation of individuals uh, taking negative actions against their own clients. Um, and, you know, I mean, that's really why I think we'll continue to push towards this decentralized exchange, these decentralized contracts, these, uh, this entire decentralized economic world that's in its infancy uh, will continue to, to continue to grow.
Hey, let me throw this out in terms of decentralization. If you go up onto the Ethereum organization uh, website, the Ethereum Foundation website, uh, and you command F for two phrases, uh, credible neutrality uh, and censorship resistance, these are two of the uh, ideals that are most uh, cherished by the uh, Ethereum uh, community and I think just the broader decentralized crypto space in general. And yet we're talking about doing things like finding ways of monitoring bad actors, about controlling uh, OFAC compliance about managing what uh, is and is not a security. Is this kind of a, an, an unmovable object uh, on a collision course with an unstoppable force in terms of trying to build on these uh, layers of traditional compliance in an ecosystem that has been, uh, you know, very much prizes this idea of credible neutrality and censorship resistance. Credible neutrality, by the way, means all actors uh, on a network get treated in the same fashion. Uh, and in theory, I guess that might mean uh, that there'd be a, a challenge, a collision course with the OFAC SDN list. Well, let's see, you put a lot out there. Uh, like, why do we have these compressed markets, as you as you called it? Um, in a way, it's that's the problem that we're solving. And I mentioned earlier that nobody loves their bank. Why don't they love their bank? Well, there's not a lot of innovation that happens in banks. What's happened is the regulatory world has gotten so complex and so large that you don't really have new banks being formed. You don't have competition and innovation happening because the existing banks have gotten very large and they're protecting their own domain. But on top of that, they're really scared about taking on new product lines that could be better if they're fearful that it might go against the grain of their regulator. If you've got a healthy multi-billion dollar business and pretty much pick any bank along Wall Street, you're there. Of course, you're not gonna jeopardize that business for this new form of crypto, even if crypto right. offers some really good things. Um, so that's why we're all here. Now, of course, this also leads to the fact that we now have these, you know, like you said, compressed market structures. The existing financial system would not accept crypto back in 2013. Um, so Bitco was actually formed purely its technology company, building a very decentralized type of product. We hold one key out of three, it creates a very novel approach to securing assets. All right, we never anticipated that we would become a regulated entity. We thought we would just be selling technology into the industry. And what we learned was that the existing financial system, the existing players were not willing to participate because it was too high risk for their profile because of their regulatory oversight. So mm. we had to build that. We had to build it all from the, from the ground up. And, you know, we've done that, I think, pretty successfully. I think we're the largest by far you know, independent custodian digital assets in the world. But it takes a lot of work and it takes a risk profile that's a little bit different from what the existing system is. So. Um, anyway, I'm not sure if I'm answering all the points. You had a lot of things in there, but in terms of why we have this, this verticalized stack uh, in the crypto world, which goes against the grain of what crypto is all about, is, is because of regulatory. Um, so I hope that we can keep the regulatory you know, kind of minds open, but hey, there's a better way to do this where you're going to be able to be a better regulator as a result of opening your mind to a different way of doing it. Whereas if you just try to apply today's rules that we apply on the legacy system, which was built for people that had no computers, you know, 50 to 80 years ago, um, we're going to end up squashing this whole space. I want to jump in and talk about one other story here, uh, one that's certain to stir up controversy among some Bitcoiners. Yuga Labs, uh, the company behind the most successful NFT collections, Bored Apes Yacht Club uh, and others, uh, MeBits uh, and others, has announced a new project on the Bitcoin blockchain. The collection, called 12-fold, will feature only 300 pieces of art each will be inscribed into a Satoshi, that's the smallest denomination of Bitcoin. Yuga says the collection will come out later this year. Decrypt 
says it comes as the momentum is possibly slowing for ordinals, the original Bitcoin native NFT. Uh, fees paid to Bitcoin miners for inscribing ordinals into Satoshis have fallen from $170,000 on February the 15th to just $11,000 yesterday. Uh, guys, any thoughts about the expansion of uh, NFTs onto the Bitcoin blockchain uh, or the wider NFT market more generally? I mean, I think it's an, it's an interesting development, um, particularly because the Bitcoin blockchain needs to figure out a way to stimulate economic activity. Um, you know, we're, we're good for the next 10, 20 years on uh, Coinbase rewards. Um, but once the minor rewards reach uh, a point that is not enough to sustain the network, then transaction fees at this current point in time will not make up the difference. Uh, you know, if I remember correctly, I was looking at this a week or two ago, it's about 5% of minor rewards are actually transaction fees. So you're talking about a 95% depreciation, uh, or excuse me, decrease in uh, fees paid to miners once that coin-based reward gets cut in half, you know, a few more times. Um, so it's, it's an interesting development. Um, I don't know how far it's going to go. I don't have a strong opinion there, but I think, you know, Bitcoiners, you know, core devs, they, you know, this is the type of work they need to be doing. How do you um, get economic activity on, back onto the chain, essentially? My view on it is that the, the ordinals technology creates a lot of internal Bitcoin debate right now because there are some open questions about how do you scale Bitcoin over the long term? How do the fees work? How do we keep it decentralized by not bloating it with so much that you have to have a massive server in order to run a node? Yeah. Um, that's going to sort itself out. I think there's a larger picture here, which is we finally figured out how to do uh, ownership uh, of, of, uh, of data. On, of, of data. Um, Digital ownership has been a problem for a very long time. We used to have all of this digital rights management stuff for like protecting music from piracy back in the 1990s, if you recall that. It's finally sorted itself out with better business models. But digital property ownership is a huge thing, whether that's going to be art, whether that's going to be certifications, whether it's going to be reputation or other things we'll figure out. Um, Bitcoin has the best, most secured network of all the blockchains today from a decentralized perspective. So it's yes. natural that people want to tie that security of Bitcoin to, you know, digital property. That makes sense. Whether, you know, ordinals are going to be the mechanism to do that or, or the blockchains, I think that'll continue to sort itself out. So I think this right. is a, a learning point along the road of figuring out how to do digital property right. And uh, it's, it's exciting. Yeah, by the way, one of the things that Bitcoiners have said about this, one of the objections that I've heard floated uh, is, hey, great, you want to do... Uh, you know, these things, uh, NFTs and other projects on the Bitcoin blockchain, that's awesome, but use a layer two, do it on something like Lightning. Uh, don't pollute the core blockchain uh, with this type of overhead. That's just one of the ideas that we've heard floated by folks in the Bitcoin community. But as you said, uh, it is something that definitely remains to be sorted out. I want to take a look at a couple other stories that we're following today. Uh, sources speaking to Reuters say Visa and MasterCard are pausing their pursuit of new crypto partnerships following a tough year for the industry. The sources say both companies have decided to postpone certain new crypto products and services until market conditions and the regulatory environment improve. Both companies remain publicly committed to expanding crypto services. By the way, speaking of a tough year for crypto, Coindesk says Digital Currency Group, also known as DCG, has reported a loss of $1.1 billion for 2022. The company blamed the fall in crypto prices, as well as the impact of the three hours capital collapse on its subsidiary Genesis, uh, which is going through a bankruptcy restructuring right now. DCG held only $260 million in cash or cash equivalents at the end of the year. 
Its uh, annual independent validation put the value of DCG at 2.2 billion. And finally, Chainalysis says 2022 saw the highest level of on-chain crime ever. Uh, the Bitcoin, excuse me, the blockchain analytics company says illicit transactions rose for a second straight year to 20.6 billion. And that's a conservative estimate. Chainalysis says 43% of illegal transaction volumes came from activity associated with sanctions entities. Uh, that's a significant increase following OFAC, Office of Foreign Asset Control at Treasury here in the US, on uh, new crypto sanctions. Uh, boy, I, that sort of uh, that last story there, the Chainalysis story, reminds me of uh, what you would see if you uh, if you took a chart of uh, automotive deaths per thousand through the 20s and 30s, right? Isn't this just an expansion of uh, volume, uh, what's driving uh, presumably uh, some of that uh, issue? It looks like uh, we're having a little bit of problems with uh, Nico's connection. Uh, Mike, jump in. Any thoughts on these? Obviously, these are three kind of somewhat grim stories. Well, let's see. Visa MasterCard. Um, uh, a lot of participants in the space still go up and down uh, in their interest level with the price of Bitcoin. Um, I think that's kind of unfortunate. There's companies like ours. I'm sure Nico's the same boat. Like we're here because we believe this space actually has long-term massive impact. Um, yeah. So if you're not here because you believe that and you're just interested in the price, of course, you you might disappear. Second thing that causes that interest to wax and wane is remember they're balancing, you know, regulatory risk with uh, innovation in business, and those larger firms have a lot more at stake with their regulators than the smaller firms. So they tend to ha get a little bit more skittish in times when the prices are low because they can't always see the business. Um, but fear not, it's coming. It's it's unstoppable. Um, let's see uh, on the. Um, on the other side, the fallout of Genesis, I mean, I think uh, I think most in the space have seen that for a while. Look, risk being priced into products, and it goes back to my comments earlier about infrastructure providers and what risks are they taking. You know, these need to be really uh, well metered, measured constantly. And when you're building a market out of nothing, there's actually a little bit of need to take some risks that you can't measure quite as well as you could with a very mature like stock market. Um, but other parts of it are just irresponsible. And, you know, I think when you break down, like, the activities that are happening in Genesis, it's pretty hard to say that it wasn't irresponsible at this point. I think a lot of people called it out as it was happening. And yet, you know, markets do what they do, which is they get pretty exciting. Um, and people jump in and say, ah, it's working so far until, guess what, it doesn't work. So, look, we got to price risk into our financial products. If you don't do that, you will eventually blow up. Um, it's a hard learning lesson. It's not crypto specific. This has happened over and over again in financial markets for 100 years. Yeah, indeed, hundreds of years. Uh, Nico, I know you were having some challenges uh, with your network connection there. Were you able to hear those stories? Any thoughts? Uh, I didn't hear the stories, so apologies for that. Yeah, my computer decided to restart uh, mid-interview, but um, I did. if you want to repeat them, I'm happy to comment. Well, you know, these were just some stories about some, uh, some relatively, uh, I guess you could say, short-term uh, challenges in the space. Uh, for example, Visa and MasterCard said they were pausing their pursuit of new crypto partnerships, but remain publicly committed to expanding crypto services. And they both uh, cited uh, that they're going to postpone uh, these new services until market conditions and regulatory environments uh, improve. And then we had some uh, negative uh, earning stories uh, or some negative uh, financial news stories coming out of DCG. It's still privately held. Uh, and finally, uh, this report coming out of Chainalysis stating that uh, 2022 uh, was the most criminal year ever in terms of blockchain uh, crime. Uh, so some some negative stories. And uh, the question is really, uh, how do you think about this in terms of your, your broader paradigm, uh, the shorter term 
uh, negatives that we see versus uh, what you may or may not perceive to be a brighter future in store as we move ahead. Yeah, I mean, you know, the larger, more traditional companies uh, come and go with crypto uh, with, with the tide of the price, essentially. You know, when, when the bull market is moving and everybody's excited and everybody's making money, you know, every company under the sun is looking for something to do within crypto. Um, and as soon as things get difficult, um, you know, typically at companies, you usually have a small team of people who are, you know, quote unquote, true believers of crypto that kind of push these strategic initiatives. And then when things are as difficult as they have been over the last uh, you know, year, year and a half, it's difficult for those small teams to keep executives on board. So I think that's natural, um, or it has been natural at least over the last several cycles in this space. Um, but you know, we kind of have faith that the bull market will return. Um, you know, there is massive uh, implications here for this technology that we are firm believers in. And you know, as as things get uh, brighter, we'll see these companies return back into the market and, and continue building. Hey everyone, we're gonna take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, I also want to show our viewers a clip from yesterday's crypto distillery right here on Real Vision. Uh, this is where we wrap up the month for our pro crypto members on the Real Vision website. They get access to additional institutional-grade content. Here's a quick snippet. I wanted to continue this conversation here about charts uh, to turn our attention to recent charts by Peter Pinkasov. Uh, this is from his most recent episode of Technical Trader Crypto. First off, is this a BTC chart that, PT, that Peter highlighted last Thursday? As Peter points out here, this peak we're seeing here could be as a secondary high uh, as we've never gotten below those similar August highs last year. As Peter commented, quote, not only do we tick that resistance, this is also the TD propulsion up level, which should exist uh, as an initial response. Look, if we get back above 25,000, 35,000K easy, that's the next target, end quote. Now, before I get to Chris, King Coves, and Elaine's thoughts on all this, I wanted to highlight one more chart from Peter's episode that touches on ETH. As Peter commented below, we're going to be looking for Bitcoin to remain a little bit more dominant, and it's becoming much clearer now that looks to be the trend, end quote. Peter then notes that it looks like ETH ultimately failed a medium-term kind of level here, but he also notes it can be hard to decipher as we're in the middle of a range and it could easily rip back up. Obviously, there's a lot to unpack here. Elaine, Chris, Coves, what do you make of Peter's analysis? I've been noticing us be pushing up against resistance now for a few weeks, and I think it's only a matter of time and probably not much time until we do hit you know, we go probably from 25 to 30 in pretty short order. I saw a tweet uh, somebody shared the other day that said, in Bitcoin's entire history, it's only spent less than 72 hours between the range 25 and 30,000, which I thought was pretty fascinating. It's usually just ripped either up through it mm -hmm. or down below. Um, but there's very, very little trading activity within that range, which, uh, which was pretty interesting. Hey, Nico, as a quant, this is right in your wheelhouse. Uh, what are your thoughts on Bitcoin price action? 
Yeah, I mean, we view January as uh, largely driven by massive margin liquidations, the highest we've seen in, in two years, um, a little over two years, actually, you know, on the back of extremely illiquid books. Um, so from this point forward, what's really going to determine where we move from here is whether new spot inflows arrive or not. Um, you know, that's really what's going to determine the next leg higher. Uh, and at this moment, at least on the institutional side, like those taps have dried up pretty considerably. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying we won't go higher. Anything's possible in crypto. If you've been in the space long enough, you know, it'll likely do what nobody expects it to do. Um, but just looking at, you know, some of the empirical data points we look at, like it's, it, it's not uh, the most com comfortable position to sit in on the long side at the moment. Um, you know, margin liquidations, you know, not only in crypto, but across all asset classes tend to revert without follow-on in the spot department. And at this moment, we don't see that on the institutional side. Yeah, I should probably add, you can sign up for Real Vision Crypto Pro at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. Uh, Mike, jump in, talk a little bit about this uh, from the sanctions perspective. Well, you had mentioned that it was the, uh, the worst crime year, I guess. And you know, one of the great things about digital assets is that it's creating a financial system that spans the globe. Um, so in the past, we've had, you know, very locale specific financial systems. Every country manages their own fiat currency, and then of course regulates the ins and the outs. Um, a lot of that is going to remain true. The internet gave us the ability to communicate globally across borders, and all of a sudden, digital assets give us the ability to send money. Uh, so an example of this, right? Like wiring money inside the United States, pretty easy to do. Try to wire it outside of the United States. It takes a long time. And all of a sudden, uh, this is being blown open by digital assets. Right. So our regulators are stymied by this. So regulators in the past have each thought that they had kind of purview over their world, their, their little fiefdom. That's true. Um, but when you're talking about sanctions, like whose sanctions is it? So BitGo is a regulated firm across a number of different countries and around, the, around the planet. And when we're applying a sanctions list, which one should we apply? Should we do Germany, UK, US? Um, do they all get together and create one giant sanctions list and we all agree upon it? Um, so this is a real problem that has to be solved someday. Um, it has not been solved yet. Now, the U.S. being the dominant economy wants to put on the dominant sanctions controls across the planet. Um, I'm not saying there's a right or wrong to this. Just pointing out that, frankly, the, the problem hasn't been solved and regulators are really uh, completely at a loss as to how to solve it. So product will ultimately answer the question and we will see a competing set of products across different jurisdictions and we will see governments fight in particular ways about how they might want to uh, protect their fiefdoms or open up more broadly. I want you to move on to some viewer questions because in fact, uh, Mike, the very first question uh, that comes up is actually in some ways related to the points that you just made there. Uh, and the question is, uh, this one comes to us uh, from the Real Vision website from Vincent. Uh, how do you view the tokenization of stocks? Uh, and do you think stocks can be traded against crypto either via KEX or DEX? It's an interesting question because it gets into some of the regulatory challenges that you just mentioned. Uh, but what do you think of the guys, the, the potential uh, for basically trading stocks and other securities on chain? Well, it's very doable. Um, so the, the technology is not the issue. Uh, this is all about how do you want to regulate and manage it? Um, so there's some advantages, right? If you can if you can tokenize everything in an open format across open markets, we're going to create a lot more creative ways that people can have access to liquidity. It'll run 24-7. You won't be dependent upon small number of players. That is if regulatory will allow it. So right. the regulators have taken a very firm grip 
on how you trade equities. Um, they've created a long laundry list of things to do. By the way, go read an S1 statement, right? Go read the quarterly reports. Like, okay, here's a thousand pages of investor protections, which frankly, <laughs> I think it does a pretty uh, comical job at, at protecting investors. I think people are investing through their stockbrokers without any of the advantage of that information anyway. Um, and there's so many people that complain about the unfairness of that system. Anyway, none of those are technical issues. Um, but what digital assets do is they, they, they bring to the forefront the ability for us to break these systems open. And we'll see how the U.S. regulatory and legislative uh, response. Miko, any thoughts on bringing uh, stock trading uh, or securities trading more broadly onto a blockchain? Yeah, I mean, that plays into the what we were talking about earlier around decentralizing the globe's uh, economic systems. I mean, it's a much more frictionless um, product in the end state if you can build some UX, UI around it. But again, to Mike's point, it, it really is going to be what regulators and ultimately legislators allow um, right. that, that determine how that plays out. Uh, I think there's, a, there's many advantages to it. Mike talked about some of them. Um, but you know, ultimately, this is a governmental question. Okay, final set of questions here from Ralph on the Real Vision website. This is a double question, one for Mike and one for Nico. Uh, first, for Mike, what do you, did you learn watching the recent government actions involving Custodia? And for Nico, uh, what are some new protocols that you're bullish on? Uh, first to you, Mike, what did you learn watching the recent government actions involving Custodia? Look, I think the reg regulators and legislators, they're, they're primarily good at two things, A, doing nothing, and then B, overreacting. Um, I do think that we have uh, an overreaction to FTX at the moment. Uh, they're, they're clearly doing a very widespread of various activities against various players. Um, the details of custodia, of course, it should be allowed to hook up to the Fed. Um, it's ridiculous that this is actually even a question, and yet all things crypto are uh, kind of being blocked from a number of levels. I think this shakes out eventually. It's a bummer. Um, I think it just it, it delays this space being able to help, frankly, investors, regulators, everybody, which is what we're all trying to do. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, regulators are having to learn. Uh, they're scared of it. They're not sure what to make of it. It doesn't fit within the box of what they've had to regulate before. Okay, over to you, Nico. What are some new protocols that you're bullish on? Yeah, I think I'll take the safe regulatory route and not list specific names, but I will say I'm most interested in uh, protocols that are working on rollups. Um, and the ability to have interconnectivity across various chains um, is probably the most exciting work that I see going on in the back end these days. Interesting. Okay, we've got time to do one more question. This one comes from Bodhi Choate on YouTube. Uh, why would declaring all cryptos as securities be a showstopper? Someone please explain why exchanges aren't willing to operate with them as securities. Uh, interesting question. I imagine the answer has to do with regulation. Uh, guys, uh, what are your thoughts? Well, look, the securities regulation scope is very large. Um, so the first question really has to be like, are these securities or are they not? Are there utility tokens that um, frankly have never uh, needed the oversight of, of the SEC before? Um, now, remember, we got two primary regulators in the US. We have the CFTC, which regulates futures contracts, derivatives contracts, does not regulate uh, commodities. And when you start talking about commodities, well, what is that? That's barrels of oil, right? That's soybeans, things like that. Um, this is actually rolled up under the legislative section of the agriculture department. Why? Because agriculture is some of the most commonly traded commodities that we have. Look, if you start putting securities types wrappers around commodities, you then start lassoing in actual physical goods 
which will change markets in very significant ways. Um, so today's regulatory requirements of being a security, if you lasso in all commodities, kind of just makes a big mess. Um, frankly, what's really needed here is thoughtful thinking, and it's going to take a while to understand what are digital assets, how are they different, how are they similar, what do they enable that you could never do before, and would you dream up the same regulatory environment today if you were starting with digital assets as what you would dream up if you were starting 100 years ago and you had no digital technology? I'm pretty sure the answer is no, you would not come up with the same system. We can do way better. We need to be really careful about applying legacy rules to the future. It's not to avoid sanctions. It's not to avoid compliance. It's not to do illegal activity. It's to make sure we have the best markets we can possibly have. Yeah, I mean, the level of complexity on this, Mike, is is really quite astounding when you think about uh, the fact that you have these, this sort of fragmented regulatory landscape between CFTC and SEC, uh, OCC, and other federal regulators. Then you have banks that are regulated at the state level, at the federal level. It's incredibly fragmented. Uh, some people think this is a good thing because you get a little bit more competition for regulation. Uh, others obviously think it adds complexity. By the way, it's not by no means uh, the only way of doing things. The FSA uh, in the UK is unified. And then add on top of this that you you really what this all really stems from is federal law. Uh, then you have uh, then you have uh, regulatory agencies that interpret federal law. And then, of course, ultimately, uh, it's not the regulatory agencies that get the final say, but the federal courts. And that can go through an entire appellate process. So it is an incredibly complex system. Absolutely. Nico, any thoughts uh, that you'd like to add on this uh, on this question? Uh, it's just about the complexity and the expansive scope that the SEC would now have over a much broader uh, group of assets if they were to apply, you know, just declare everything as security. And, and, you know, it's not the right declaration anyways. I mean, I, I would argue many of these assets, these cryptocurrencies are commodities in their nature. Um, they're digital. Uh, they're digitally native. You can't dig them up out of the ground and can't burn them. Um, but they are utilized for interacting with some underlying infrastructure service. Um, and so it's it's more about, to Mike's point, about getting the regulation right rather than just wanting to avoid any specific designation. Um, you know, and that'll allow the innovation to continue to thrive in this space. And regulation has the the negative kickback of, of kind of slowing innovation because you now spend a lot of money around red tape. You ensure you're legally compliant. Um, there's a lot of boxes you need to check along the way. Well, it's a good time to be a regulatory lawyer. That much is certain. Uh, guys, great conversation. I wanted to go around the horn and give us uh, your final thoughts, key takeaways for our audience. Uh, Nico, let's start with you. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's this growing view amongst, uh, at least within the West, that, you know, crypto died last year. FTX was kind of the nail in the coffin. And, uh, you know, the regulatory hammer that is coming down now is going to kill the asset class for that. You know, I, I don't think that could be further from the truth. If anything, over the last year, we saw exactly why this uh, so many individuals work towards improving and building uh, an alternative financial ecosystem. You know, and I think in the short term, there's a ton of uncertainty around all the items we spoke about today. But the long term, you know, I think uh, this will continue to gain share uh, and eventually eclipse uh, the global economy as the underlying system we run on. Mike, final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with? Well, the last couple of weeks have been really highlighted by all the regulatory actions in different directions. Uh, a lot of it seems negative. I actually find it positive. Um, and this is not from a selfish perspective, but from a, this is a process we need to go through perspective. So whether it happens this year, or I really think it could have happened five years ago, um, we need to go through this wrestling of how are we going to bring innovative products to bear? 
Um, how are we going to make sure that we do protect investors? What regulatory things are happening that actually are protecting investors? And then how do we apply it all to the future? So I'm not very happy with some of the things that are happening right at this moment, but I see it as a necessary step. So in general, I think everybody should feel really bullish. I mean, the crypto assets are here to stay. People have said that for a long time. Nico just said it's not dead yet. It's not even close to dead yet. This is a cat that is out of the bag and the regulators are now waking up and saying, hey, we need to figure out how to deal with this. So that's good news. Guys, a spectacular conversation. We brought in two uh, divergent points of view, but just a wonderful conversation. Really appreciate you both joining us. Absolutely. Uh, this episode of Crypto Daily Briefing is sponsored by the Crypto App. The Crypto App is your place for all things crypto. Download the Crypto App today on Google Play or the iOS Store. That's it for today. We'll be back tomorrow with Shane Brunette from Crypto Tax Calculator, who will join us live. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London, live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great afternoon, everybody.